Thank you, choir. <clears throat> That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning, is the wonderful cross. And we, we are going to survey it. We're going to figure out what was God doing in the cross for us. What's the significance of that? And specifically this morning, we're going to focus on the cross and substitution. There's a story, uh, the title of the story is A Tale of Two Cities. And in this story, there are two men... One man, his name is Charles, and the other one is Sidney. And they're both in love with the same woman. And what's interesting, though, is these two men, they, they look alike. They favor very heavily. But the woman has to choose. The woman's name is Lucy Monet, and she chooses Charles, okay? And so Lucy and Charles, they get married, have a child. <clears throat> and the story is set during the uh, French Revolution, well, Charles is a, a French aristocrat, and as the revolution is unfolding, <clears throat> Charles is arrested because of some of the activity of his family. <clears throat> so Charles is arrested, uh, imprisoned, and is charged to die by guillotine. Well, while Charles is in prison, his friend Sidney comes to visit him. And Sidney uh, proposes that he take Charles's place on death row. Now Charles refuses, but then Sidney has him drugged and drags him out of the prison. He's placed in a, in a waiting carriage there that takes him away. And Charles and his wife and his child end up escaping from France. Well, Sidney obviously is left in prison to suffer the penalty for Charles. And while he's awaiting his execution, there's another prisoner there who's a seamstress and she's been condemned to die as well. And uh, she comes up to uh, Sidney thinking that he's Charles, right? And he begins, she begins to converse with Sidney thinking he's Charles and then realizes this isn't Charles, this is some other guy. And once she finds out what's going on, that Sydney has switched clothes with Charles and, and Sydney's going to take on Charles's punishment to death for him. She is wide-eyed and she asks him the question, are you dying for him? And he replies and says, you know, I am dying for him, his wife and his child, but let's keep it quiet. And you, when you hear that story, most likely you're not saying to yourself, that's just terrible. <laughs> what a terrible thing to do. That's not what you're saying. You admire him for, for, for sacrificing himself so that Charles can go and be, the, be with his wife and family. I mean, there's a sense in which you admire this great act of self-sacrifice and love that Sidney uh, portrays in the story. And even Jesus himself in John 15 Verses 12 and 13 said this. He said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And that's what we see in that story. And in a more powerful way, that's exactly what we see in Jesus. In the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Now, just like Charles, Charles was guilty. Uh, he was put in prison. And in the same way, we're guilty of sin. The Bible says we've all sinned. And the Bible's clear that, you know, we don't, 
we don't always do the things we ought to do. And at times we do things we should not do. And at the very least, I think we can all agree that we, we do not always love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Or love our neighbor as ourselves, always. I mean, I think we can at least agree with that. And this is what the Bible calls sin. And, you know, sin does a number of things, but at the very least, it imprisons and it separates. It imprisons in the sense that it keeps you from being who God wants you to be. And it separates in that it breaks down relationships. Even relationships with one another, but primarily your relationship with God. It causes separation. And we're like Charles, you know, sitting in the prison of our own making and awaiting the judgment of a holy and righteous and good and perfect God. And the question is, is there anything that can free us, right? And that's the question. Or to use the biblical language, uh, is there anything that can atone for our sins or cover our sins? Or is there anything that can stand in our place? Do we have any Sydneys, you know? That can come in and take my place so that I can live in freedom. Well, when we look back at the Old Testament, we see that God was doing something that He's still doing today. And that is, God is making a people for Himself. That's what He's doing. He's making a people for Himself. And we see that His people were enslaved in Egypt. And God brought them out of slavery. And you can read all about that in the book of Exodus. Now, what book comes after the book of Exodus? Leviticus. You know, Leviticus is that clean portion in your Bible. <laughs> you probably don't open much. Um, you know, you're not probably spending a lot of time meditating on verses from Leviticus. Not that it's not important. It is important, but, you know, it's all about sacrifices and the priesthood. And what's interesting, though, what you need to know is that when God brings His people out, He gives them the law. The book of Exodus tells them, this is how I want you to be. This is how I want you to act towards me and one another. But then He gives them Leviticus. And the reason He does is because He knows that we are not going to be able to keep that standard. The law is going to reveal our sin. And so then what do we do with it? He gives us Leviticus, which talks about... There's a priesthood that will mediate between God and man. And you'll have this sacrificial system that you'll participate in. And I want to draw you to draw your attention to one verse in Leviticus that I think just kind of helps us get an idea of uh, what the sacrificial system was, was about. In Leviticus 17, 11, this is what it says. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we kind of, we all know that. You know, life is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood is the symbol of life. And as one scholar said, what makes atonement, and the word atonement just means covering. What covers your sin on the altar is the shedding of substitutionary life blood. Okay? Now already, I'm sure, as I'm talking about blood, you know, some of you may be getting queasy. And some of you may be thinking, you know, blood, mm, 
don't really want to hear about blood or sacrifice and killing animals and things like that. Uh, however, it's clearly in the Scripture, and God clearly, clearly has a plan for this, and it's, it's telling us something here, and we need, to, we need to address it. And you may think, well, Ron, isn't that kind of primitive and kind of barbaric, the idea of sacrificing animals and blood and all that? And uh, at first, I would say, you know, your initial response may be that, but I think as we think more in, into it, I think we'll see how this comes to play in our uh, relationship with God and sin, specifically in the Old Covenant. Think of it like this. You know, can you imagine someone committing a crime so bad that the only punishment that you could imagine that would fit the crime would be death? Or at the very least, life in prison? Sure you can. I mean, just cut on the news and you'll hear about somebody doing that, right? Uh, or take, for example, Osama bin Laden. When they, catch Osama, when they caught Osama bin Laden and he was killed, uh, many people would, would say, you know, uh, that was just that he died for what he did. Now, some of you that may not, uh, you know, say that may say at the very least he should have been in prison for the rest of his life. But the two consequences are somewhat similar in that you're taking life away. You're you're restricting life. You're taking it away. You're saying because of what you've done, the seriousness of it, there's a serious consequence. Now, if you can think of that type of punishment for someone who is sinned against us or another person, then how much more serious is the, the sin or the crime when we sin against a holy God. And that's why I think God says here that this is how you deal with sin. Sin is serious. Sin leads to death. And so the only way to atone for sin is death. That's the consequence. That's what has to, that's what has to happen. And so here's what you would do as a, as a worshiper uh, in Israel. As you become aware of your sin, you would go to the priest and you would take a spotless lamb, for example. And you would bring it to the priest and you would lay your hands on the lamb. And this would be almost in a way of symbolically you know, transferring your guilt to the lamb for your sin. And then you would kill the lamb. And the priest would take the blood and place it on the altar as a substitutionary sacrifice for you. And then he would burn the flesh cook the meat, eat, you know, you'd be able to eat the meat, but the blood would, would function as a symbol of a substitute, a substitute life for yours. And so instead of you having to die for your sin, the animal would die. And this would go on and on and on. And so this idea of sub, the substitute, the substitute, substitutionary sacrifice is very clear in the Old Testament. Now the question is, how does that relate to the death of Christ for us? How does that relate? How does it correlate? Is there a connection? Well, if you look at the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is is looking forward and God has given him a vision for this is who I'm going to send. This is going to be the the Messiah, the deliverer, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 6. And this is what Isaiah says in uh, 53, 6. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, speaking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So whoever this Messiah is going to be, God is going to lay the iniquity, the sin, our sin, onto Him. Okay? And then, as you get into the New Testament, for example, the book of Hebrews, and I'm just going to go through some scriptures fairly quickly, so you may just want to jot them down instead of trying to flip there. But Hebrews 9.22 says... Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And again, I think this speaks to the seriousness of sin. And, you know, part of it is, you know, who am I to tell God how serious sin is? Because He's the one I'm sinning against. So He's the one who tells me what is a just consequence for sin. I don't dictate that. And I'm not in a position to judge how God judges. Because <laughs> he's, he's the perfect one. And so he tells us in his word that this is the consequence of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. And I love the book of Hebrews because it really helps, helps us understand, okay, what, what's going on in that transition from the old covenant to the new covenant? And how does Christ fulfill the Old Covenant? And we see it even in a passage like this in Hebrews 10, 11-14. He writes, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we see the connection here in Hebrews that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. And so as the people of God in the Old Testament were offering up sacrifices, it was all a foreshadowing and a pointing to the time when God would send his son, the Lamb of God. To take away the sin of the world. That ultimate one time sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And the, book, the writer of Hebrews is making the argument that as, if you are in Christ then. You do not need to keep making sacrifices for sin. Okay. Because Christ has already done that. So you don't need to keep doing that. And so you see, even in the New Testament, uh, when the writers describe the death of Jesus on the cross, they use this Old Testament sacrificial substitutionary language. And I just want to read a couple passages to you from the New Testament. John one twenty nine. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming for baptism, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, that's sacrificial language. Substitutionary language. Then over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, He took our sin, put it on Him. He's our substitute. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So He took our curse upon Himself so we will no longer be cursed, right? Be under the judgment of God. 1 Peter 2, 24. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, Christ is our substitute. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins. That's what the sacrifices did in the Old Testament. They would bear the sin, atone for the sin. They were a substitute for you. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He is our substitute. There is a clear and unmistakable connection between the Old Testament sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ in the New Testament. Think of it like this. Let's say you leave church today, the church worship service here, and you're starving. Okay, And so you're ready to get to the restaurant. And so you get in your car and pedal to the metal. You're flying down Walton Way. You're going about 20 miles over the speed limit. And a cop pulls you over, gives you a ticket. And you're like, okay, I need to try to get out of this ticket. I'm going to stand in front of the judge. And so you go to court. And the judge looks at the evidence and he says, uh, you know, were you going 20 miles over the speed limit? You say, yes, sir. And then he says, bam, guilty. <laughs> and here's your fine, 500 bucks. You can make you know, that check out to the you know, city of Augusta. Now, what if the judge laid down the verdict, but then got up, took his robe off, walked down in front of the bench, took out his checkbook, and wrote a check for you for $500? You would have an act that simultaneously preserved justice as well as paid the penalty. And that's exactly what Christ has done. God in Christ, so to speak, took off the robe, came down to where we are, took on flesh, dwelt among us, paid the penalty for our sin. So now God is both just, He's consistent with who He is, and He's the justifier. He's the one who's paid our penalty through Jesus Christ. So God in Christ is our substitute. I want to share one more Scripture with you. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. This is a very short passage. Okay? Not as short as like Jesus wept, but it's pretty short. Okay? So kids, if you need a verse to memorize pretty quickly, this is a pretty good one. Real short. I guess there's only eight words in the whole verse. Okay? Here it is. Paul says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, Paul has no trouble calling Jesus our Passover lamb. Now, if anyone understood the Passover, it was Paul. Right? Because before Paul became a follower of Jesus, he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the elite scholars of the day that knew the Old Testament. And that was their job, to know the Old Testament, right? To know the laws. To know the ceremonies, to know the feasts. Paul could tell you what the Passover was all about in his sleep, right? And he has no trouble looking back at that event and saying, Jesus is 
our Passover lamb. Now, what was the Passover? The people of God were enslaved in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the people. But here's what you need to do if you want to uh, escape my judgment. You need to kill a lamb. And you need to take the lamb's blood and put it over the doorpost. And then when I come in judgment, I will pass over your home. And you will not suffer the judgment. And not only will they be passed over and, and be delivered from judgment, but they also will be delivered from slavery and brought into freedom to be God's people. That all happened through the Passover. And so what that teaches us is this. The Passover teaches us this. The sacrificial system teaches us this. And that is, one, we're all in need of a substitute. We all need a lamb. We all need a substitute. And each of us must apply the blood of the substitute. We must have the, the lamb's blood on our doorpost. Okay? It also shows us that if we do have the blood applied, then we will be delivered not only from our sin or from judgment, but we also will be delivered into freedom out of slavery. And Paul has no problem looking back at that historic event and saying, Jesus is our Passover lamb. In other words, Jesus is the lamb that was slain on the cross. And for those of us who have the blood of Christ applied to the doorposts of our hearts, we have been delivered from the judgment of God for our sin. And we have been given freedom now to become the people that God wants us to be. We've been delivered from slavery and we are entered into freedom through the sacrifice of Christ. And Paul has no problem saying Jesus as that substitute. He's our Passover lamb who was sacrificed. Now shortly after uh, Charles Wesley became a follower of Jesus, it's said that he penned this, this well-known hymn entitled, And Can It Be? I just want you to read this or listen to this first stanza and see if Charles Wesley understood this idea. Okay, This is what he says. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? See, Wesley had no problem seeing Jesus is my substitute. That's the only way that I can enter into a relationship with God is if Christ is my Passover lamb. Now, theoretically, many of you, you understand this. You believe this, right? You believe Jesus died for your sins. But practically, I think we fail to live this out at times. And let me tell you what I mean. This is what I think we do sometimes. When we find ourselves in sin, when we realize we've done something wrong or we fail to do something right, We go to God and we may say something like this to God. We say, God, you know, I'm going to make this up by reading my Bible more or praying more or giving more or telling people about you more. And in essence, what you're saying is, I am going to give a sacrifice for my sin. Now, you may not be bringing in lambs in here, right? And killing the lambs and putting the blood around here. But we have our own sacrifices that we offer up to God for our sin. 
can be even, even our obedience we can offer up as sacrifices. And those things were never meant to be sacrifices for sin. Are we to obey? Sure. But our obedience is not a sacrifice for sin. Those are good things to do that I mentioned. But Christ paid the price for our sin. There is no need for sacrifice any longer. We don't offer up sacrifices for sin because Christ once for all paid for our sin. And so if we have that mindset of, God, I will make this up to you, you are living and believing that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient. And so that's the beauty of what Christ has done. He has completely paid the penalty for our sin. There's no longer any need for any more payment. And that's what puts you in freedom. That's what releases the shackles of sin in your life. You don't need to bring any more sacrifices for your sin. But what God wants you to do is confess your sin. Agree with God about your sin. Thank Him for His forgiveness for you in Christ. Make restitution if you've wronged someone. And move forward in your relationship with God. Wesley put it like this in the rest of that hymn. A couple more stanzas. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's a beautiful picture that once he came to Christ, the chains fell off. You don't need any more keys to unlock any more shackles. They're gone. And now he says, I'm following you. And then he says, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and in him is my, all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach thy eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. See, even this short little hymn, we realize Wesley understood Christ is my substitute. And when I embrace Him by faith and experience His forgiveness in my life, the shackles are gone. I can follow Him and He will complete what He started and I will attain the crown of righteousness. Now the substitutionary death of Christ is ugly. It's messy. But it's necessary, it's sufficient, and it's freeing for the one who receives it. And so if you are one of those who have, uh, if you have received Christ as your substitute, then you have not only been forgiven of your sin, but you've been freed now to be the person God wants you to be, to rise up and follow Christ. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, and He's not your substitute, then I encourage you to embrace Him as your substitute. Right? Place your faith in Christ. Accept His forgiveness and the freedom that comes along with it so that you can become who God wants you to be. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that You've provided for us a substitute. Someone who could take on the penalty for our sin so that we can live not only now, but forever. And continually become the people you want us to be. 
Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that has not experienced the freedom that comes through your forgiveness in Christ, that they would experience that today. That they would make that decision today to follow you, to embrace Christ as their substitute, their Passover lamb. So the chains may fall off and they may live in freedom, becoming who you want them to be. And that is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.